0: You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about neutropenia. Joining me is Dr. Candice Golomb, a physician in the Division of Hematology at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia as well. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: So as I mentioned, we're talking about neutropenia, so let's start with defining that. What is neutropenia, and how do we know that we
1: are looking at it? So uh, neutropenia is defined as having a reduced neutrophil count. And the way that you're going to be able to define it is by ordering yourself a CBC with a differential. And I'm sure we'll get into this later about reasons when to order a differential and reasons when not to order a differential. But if you do, you can either look at the neutrophil percent or you can look at the absolute neutrophil count or the ANC. And I'll typically look at the ANC. If you are going by textbook definitions, there are three categories of neutropenia. There's severe, moderate, and mild. Mild is defined as an ANC of 1,500 to 1,000. Moderate is 500 to 1,000. And severe is defined as below 500. And we'll certainly get into this later. But depending on the clinical scenario, I react very differently to different ANCs and don't typically worry all that much about mild neutropenia in most contexts.
0: So how neutropenic do you need to be for us to start worrying about an increased risk of infection? And how might this be different in a child who's previously well versus a child
1: who has other risk factors for infection? Yeah, no, this is a great question, and it varies a lot depending on the clinical scenario. So if you have a previously well child and you have yourself at CBC with a differential, and you see an ANC between 1,000 and 1,500. And this is a kid who's got a really benign history, doesn't have issues with frequent infections or issues with uh, delay in growth or failure to thrive. I'm not particularly interested in that 1,000 to 1,500 under most scenarios. And then below 1,000 is where, you know, um, start to be a little bit concerned and really want to get myself a good history and understand what the context is for the patients. And there are certainly times when uh, there are patients who might have a resting ANC that lives around 900 to 1,000 and they are not at increased risk of infections. And then there's other kids for whom that might be a little bit of a concerning finding, particularly if you um, have a history of a normal ANC in the past and that they have this lower ANC that's developed. But typically, we really worry most about infection in patients with a severe neutropenia when you have your neutrophil count less than 500. The caveat for that is if you have a child who's on immunosuppressive agents, a child who um, has been treated with chemotherapy, and that's the reason why you have induction of neutropenia, that does change the calculus a little bit. And, you know, at higher levels, you might still be more concerned.
0: hmm right. So the clinical picture is really important there in terms of determining risk.
1: Absolutely. And then the flip side of that, and I think we can talk about it a little bit more, is when you diagnosed a patient with autoimmune neutropenia, and this is a little bit nuanced too, and you know, usually at this point you have a hematologist or an immunologist involved, but if you have a patient who has autoimmune neutropenia but otherwise is a healthy kid and this is something that was identified on lab finding and worked up, we might not you know, get ourselves too concerned without fever when they have severe neutropenia. Now, we're using
0: the word neutropenia, but I hear different words sometimes used interchangeably, but there are different definitions. So let me give you some examples. So some people will call it neutropenia, but I've also heard lymphopenia, granulocytopenia, and agranulocytosis. So can you help explain the differences there so we can make sure we're using the correct term in the right
1: situation? Yeah, absolutely. So when you get your CBC, when you get your differential, you're going to see, you know, kind of the percentage of the different white blood cells that you have. And the most, you know, common circulating white blood cell in humans is neutrophils. So typically the largest percent of your your white blood cell population is going to be neutrophils. But they're not the only ones there. We have our lymphocytes, we have our basophils, we have our monocytes, we have our eosinophils. So take your pick. They each have their own personality, their own role. But when we're talking about neutropenia, we're talking specifically about the low neutrophil count. And so when you're looking at the differential, you want to make sure that you're looking at the neutrophils or the ANC. When we talk about lymphopenia, that's when you have a low lymphocyte count. And you'll also see those are the sort of the second most predominant or sometimes the most predominant white blood cell on a patient's differential. And when we classically think about neutrophils versus lymphocytes, we think about neutrophils as fighting as being the kind of the cells that predominantly fight bacterial infections and lymphocytes as being the cells that predominantly fight viral infections. I think that's a a useful way to approach it, even though, you know, more research is showing that neutrophils might have some role in combating viral infections as well. But when we say neutropenia, specifically neutrophils, lymphopenia, we're looking specifically at lymphocytes, granulocytopenia, it could be all of your granulocytes that so might be a little bit low. It's it's not such a clinically useful term from my perspective, but I think that refers to all of the, the cells, the, the white cells that are called granulocytes. So your basophils, your eosinophils, and your neutrophils might all be low. And the last term is agranulocytosis. This tends to get thrown around with drug-induced neutropenia, and it also tends to refer to um, the most severe kinds of neutropenia, typically with an ANC below 100.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you for that clarification. Now you were talking about all the different things that we might see in the differential on a CBC. So when we do see neutropenia, what other elements of our CBC with diff should we pay particular attention to?
1: So I like looking at all of the cell counts and so thinking about, you know, what is the total whites count, what is your hemoglobin, and what are, you, what are your platelet counts in addition to looking at the differential itself. If I'm seeing multiple cytopenias, if I'm seeing neutropenia in addition to anemia or neutropenia in addition to thrombocytopenia, this gets me a little bit more concerned than if I see an isolated neutropenia. The other things that I'd love to add on, especially when, you know, you're you're kind of trying to suss out, is a failure to produce neutrophils or is this neutrophils that are getting destroyed? I like to look at similar uh, things for other cell lines, and, and so we have a great answer for that for red cells, which is looking at your reticulocyte count. So when you're anemic and you're trying to figure out is your are your red cells being destroyed, or are they, uh, or is there a failure to produce them, adding a reticulocyte count onto your CBC can be really helpful. And even though reticulocyte count doesn't give you direct insight into what's going on with neutrophil production, if you have anemia plus neutropenia and you have a low reticulocyte count, that makes you think more about a process where you have suppression of cell production rather than maybe a mediated destruction of your cells. So I, I do like to look at uh, all the other kind of cell types um, closely and I, as a hematologist, I love a reticulocyte count. And then when I am looking at the differential, I do like to look to see what the lymphocytes are doing. Is this just a low uh, neutrophil count or are lymphocytes uh, down? This might make me, you know, concerned about underlying uh, immunodeficiency as well. And I also, you know, of course, uh, um, looking for atypical lymphocytes, which are sometimes reported out on the uh, differential, can be helpful. If you have a good lab, an atypical lymphocyte is, you you can trust that it's a reflection of a recent viral infection or an ongoing viral infection. And that just means that your lymphocytes are looking bigger and more activated and appropriately responding to an infection. But there is kind of always the concern, I think, that comes up when you're looking at, when you see uh, atypical lymphocytes, are these actually leukemic blasts that have been misclassified? And most of the time, I can tell you with the the CHOP lab, I really do trust them that when they say they're atypical lymphocytes, it's actually uh, indicative of a viral infection. Although there is no substitute for having uh, your friendly neighborhood hematologist or even better yet your friendly neighborhood he had a pathologist lay eyes on the cells
0: and there's so much detail there that can be gained from looking at the differential as you as you talked about and smear as well now we've been talking about the cutoffs for these different values as if they're pretty universal but i'm wondering what impact race or ethnic origin
1: may have on the prevalence of neutropenia now this is a great question Unfortunately, when those limits were set, that or sort of set, when the definitions were set for mild, severe, and moderate neutropenia, those were largely based on looking at counts from individuals of European origin. But when you look at folks who are from the Middle East or Mediterranean region or from Africa, often you will see that it's pretty common to have a little bit of a lower resting neutrophil count. And this, you'll hear it classified as benign neutropenia or benign ethnic neutropenia sometimes. And it's actually something that in the past 10, 15 years or so has been defined. We think it's related to the absence of something called the Duffy antigen receptor, which is, it's present on your red blood cells. It's a minor red blood cell antigen. And it's one of the ways that kind of malaria, plasmodium vivax, can get into your red cells. And so in regions of the world where there's a lot of malaria, this mutation's developed where you don't have the Duffy antigen receptor on your red blood cells, and it gives you some protection from malaria infection. But it's interesting this receptor also kind of we think acts as a sink for different inflammatory signals and kind of modulates some of the signaling that you might have in your blood. And so if you don't have it on your red blood cells, it seems that your neutrophils are maybe less likely to leave the bone marrow or more likely to exit the circulation And so at baseline, when you're well, when you're resting, you might have a lower neutrophil count. But these individuals are not at higher risk of bacterial infection. And so one of the most common reasons that I'll see kids referred to the hematology clinic is for, you know, maybe an ANC that's like 900. They're of African-American descent. They have been growing beautifully. They don't have a history of recurrent bacterial infections and uh, they uh, don't have any concerning family history, I will often, if I I get a really great history and I have, you know, an ANC that is above 900 or 1,000, I'll be able to bless those children and give them a diagnosis of benign neutropenia, and we'll kind of stop evaluation at that point and not kind of go further down trying to identify what the cause of neutropenia is for them. But again, I really want to have a good reassuring history, a good reassuring infectious history, and a good reassuring growth history for them too.
0: So interesting about the Duffy receptor and the crossover there with malaria. But as you mentioned, this really highlights the importance of looking at the big picture and taking a good clinical history and looking at more than just the number in front of you on the CBC. So thanks for
1: reminding us of that. Well, it's it's one of the other things that's helpful is you'll often get a history from the parents. Oh, yeah, I remember when I was a kid, I had to go get blood draws a couple of times because they were worried about this. Mm -hmm. Or you might hear the same thing. I I was recently seeing, I'm currently following a patient whose ANC is in the 700 range, and I'm kind of checking her again just to be a little bit on the safer side. But she has a brother who had a really similar history of not having any significant bacterial infections. And when he was young, was found to have a lower ANC that eventually kind of leveled at around 1,200 or so. So again, patients that I'm diagnosing with benign neutropenia, but sometimes when it's a little bit lower, then I still kind of do follow that number.
0: Sure. Now, as we've been talking about, there are many different causes of neutropenia, including acquired, post-infectious, drug-induced, nutritional, immunodeficiencies, hypersplenism, bone marrow disorders, congenital, and myeloperoxidase deficiency. In primary care, though, we often see post-infectious neutropenia after a viral infection. But can you tell me what the reason is behind this happening, and what should we expect in terms of resolution
1: of that neutropenia? That's also a great question. So I think that you're absolutely right in my experience. The two most common reasons that I end up getting consulted or getting referred patients who are otherwise healthy with neutropenia is going to be benign ethnic neutropenia or viral suppression. In terms of the etiology of why viruses might cause you to transiently develop neutropenia, there are a couple of factors that might be at play. Some viruses we think can directly cause early neutrophil apoptosis. So you have, you know, neutrophils that are basically dying off before they should, so they don't get released into the circulation. Some infections, uh, neutrophils actually might get stimulated and play a role in fighting those viral infections. And instead of having an increase in your neutrophil count, as you you might expect to see and as you often will see, it might be that they get activated and get cleared and that you have an associated neutropenia that we see as well. Mm -hmm. And then I think there's probably mechanisms behind it that aren't particularly well-defined yet. But the neutrophils can definitely be have an idiosyncratic and finicky response to both viral and bacterial infections. In terms of how long it takes for the neutropenia to resolve, so let's say you have a patient, you sent a routine screening, CBC on them, the 9- to 12-month visit, they also had a little bit of a cold, And you see that low neutrophil count, you know, before jumping to, you know, a more extensive evaluation, if they're an otherwise healthy kid and there's really no other red flags on history or physical exam that are popping up, I might just kind of recheck. And, you know, again, the risk of rechecking too soon and still seeing neutropenia and then subjecting them to an unnecessary blood draw is something that you want to avoid. But you also don't want to miss, you know, something at a more concerning etiology of the suppressed neutrophil count. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, rechecking at the sort of the two to three weeks after you find a a patient with neutropenia is a totally reasonable time frame to look again. Mm -hmm. The flip side of that, though, is sometimes it's nice not to check, uh, to check the differential, If you have a patient, again, who is healthy, who doesn't have a history of significant bacterial infections or recurrent bacterial infections, who's growing well, I think it's reasonable when you're doing those screening labs to just send a CBC without differential. And that way, you know, you get a sense of there's issues with anemia or thrombocytopenia, but especially because viral infections can be so common and viral suppression can be so common, it sometimes is better not to send that differential unless there's something specific that you're interested in um, sort of defining better because of a concerning history.
0: Right. And then you won't get those incidental findings.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So when we are evaluating a
0: patient with neutropenia, you mentioned a few times talking about red flags that might pop up in the history. So what sort of infectious history is particularly concerning in a patient who has neutropenia that should raise a red flag for us?
1: Oh, Absolutely. I sort of mentioned before thinking about neutrophils, the cells that fight bacterial infections. And I think that that, when you're working up a patient, I think that that's a useful way of thinking about it. So thinking about, is this a kid who has recurrent ear infections? Are they somebody who has recurrent skin infections? Have they been hospitalized with pneumonia? Sometimes uh, certain immunodeficiencies or neutropenia can manifest with chronic diarrhea. So that's certainly something that is worth looking for, too. And then, you know, even though we do think about the neutrophils as being most effective at fighting bacterial infection, most important in fighting bacterial infection, sometimes that neutropenia can exist in patients with broader immunodeficiency. So, you know, thinking about poor growth, thinking about, you know, frequent and recurring viral infections is also something that might raise some concerns for me. And then, you know, thinking about um, does somebody have recurrent lymphadenopathy that you might see on exam, issues with any oral ulcerations that might come and go. And then, of course, if you find any evidence of hepatosplenomegaly on your exam, that would also be a concerning finding. And then the last thing is any other symptoms that might be concerning for other cytopenias. So again, that suppression of a neutrophil count on its own in the setting of a virus might not be so concerning. But if you also are dropping your hemoglobin, if you've also dropped your platelets, that could certainly be attributed to a viral infection. But it does merit a little bit more thought, maybe a little bit more investigation, too.
0: That's great. Thank you so much for those tips, both on history and exam that we can use when we see a patient with neutropenia. Now let's talk about, we've touched on this a little bit, but we do screening CBCs at the nine and 24 month visits. And as you mentioned, we don't usually need a differential on those CBCs. But if there was one sent and we find an incidental neutropenia on those screening CBCs in well children, what should be our next steps in terms of following that up?
1: So I think that if it's an isolated neutropenia and it's reasonable to wait and to recheck, you know, if you have your patient with a severe neutropenia um, below 500 for their ANC, I might recheck a little bit sooner versus a patient with a little bit of a moderate neutropenia or a mild neutropenia, I might recheck a little bit later. But I think the first step is just rechecking to see if it persists and make sure that it might be trending in the right direction. But I think if you have, you know, 2BCBCs where you show a patient has uh, kind of persistent neutropenia it's certainly reasonable to talk with hematology about the next steps or how to proceed or just to refer the patient over to CS. We have the ability to look at their smear. We have the ability to think about some other tests and some other things that might be triggering their their neutropenia. I think we talked a little bit about benign ethnic neutropenia as being a common finding from us. We've also talked about viral suppression as being a really common cause of neutropenia. Another thing that we commonly will see in the, um, the one to six-year-old group of patients is autoimmune neutropenia, which is going to be a little bit different than the other two uh, causes of neutropenia that we talked about because it can give you really severe neutropenia. It can give you, you know, A and C, 0, or what. Or and if you see such a low neutrophil count and you see that it persists, it's it's reasonable to send them over to see us. I will say that when we uh, make a diagnosis of autoimmune neutropenia which we normally do by sending testing looking for antibodies directed against neutrophils. Those patients we monitor closely for infection and we want them to be evaluated should they have fevers. However, the majority of children who have autoimmune neutropenia in this setting of infection are able to mount an appropriate response to infection and actually release enough neutrophils to overwhelm any anti-neutrophil antibodies they have in the circulation and actually bump up their ANC in the setting of of viral infections or bacterial infections and do okay. And so even though patients with autoimmune neutropenia often for a prolonged time can have a low ANC, the majority of them are not going to have recurrent significant bacterial infections and are going to do okay, even though we do monitor those patients more closely. That's going to be different than a patient who has an inherited congenital neutropenia and actually has difficulty making the appropriate number of neutrophils. And those patients with severe neutropenia, we might intervene in different ways to try to increase their neutrophil count and and worry more about the risk of infection.
0: That's an important distinction. And before we know what's causing the neutropenia when I'm Waiting to follow up a CBC on a patient, I usually tell them that in the interim, if they have a fever or they show signs of illness, that I want them just to get in touch with me so I can decide if we need to do labs sooner or see them in the office so we can
1: assess them while they're neutropenic. I absolutely agree with that recommendation. That would be, you know, if you have a patient who had that incidental finding of neutropenia and you're kind of, you know, waiting a couple of weeks before you recheck, I think that it is absolutely reasonable to have that family get in touch with you if that patient has a fever to sort of discuss the need for additional lab work and additional testing at that time.
0: So when should we be requesting a blood smear or referring a patient for a bone marrow biopsy with hematology?
1: So, you know, if you're within the CHOP system, the really nice thing is now there's a new order for asking for a peripheral smear. And so you can order that through Epic. They will make a smear for you. What's a little bit frustrating that it used to be that if you had any cytopenias, they would automatically trigger a a smear production. And and that theoretically should happen, but it doesn't always happen. So if if you're a little bit more on the alert and you want to have a a smear made and a a, uh, technician or potentially a hematologist or pathologist look at the smear, if you order the peripheral smear, that will help things out a lot. I would say that as a hematologist again, just like I'm fans, a fan of reticulocyte counts, uh, as an easy low cost intervention that can give you a lot of information, I'm also a big fan of getting a peripheral smear. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's not unreasonable in a patient who you're getting that follow-up CDC on to see if they have recovery of their low neutrophil found at that point to certainly throw on a peripheral smear. So if, again, I have a little bit of a, a lower threshold for liking to get peripheral smears on, on kids. In terms of the referral to hematology for neutropenia, I think that let's say you have that incidental identification of neutropenia on your nine uh, or twenty-four months reading CBC. I think if you have it persist on your follow-up study that you do you know, two to four weeks later, then it's reasonable to refer to hematology. If you know you have comfort with dealing with patients with mild neutropenia, uh, particularly patients of you know Middle Eastern or African descent. And you know you have comfort with counseling folks about benign ethnic neutropenia, particularly if they have an ANC that's a thousand or greater. I think that that doesn't necessarily require a referral to hematology, although we're certainly always happy to see those patients. But then things that might make me want to bring the kid over sooner are severe neutropenia, and then the presence of other cytopenias. That either might raise my concern for an evolving bone marrow failure kind of syndrome where the marrow stops making multiple cell lines or a condition where you have immunity destruction of different cell lines, which is something that we can certainly help to evaluate. And then, of course, patients with things like leukemia or other uh, processes where you can have infiltration of the bone marrow and uh, replacement of your healthy progenitor cells with cells that are not making new red cells or platelets or neutrophils that's another uh, reason to send them over to us to get evaluated.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for walking us through neutropenia as well as the red flags that we should be looking out for so that we know when to call upon our hematology friends. And we appreciate the care that you give to our patients at CHOP and for teaching us all a little bit more about neutropenia today. it was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chopedu pcp for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.